0: fellowship and love.
1: to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Haley Stewart. Haley is a Catholic author, podcaster, and speaker. She co-authored Feast, Real Food, Reflections, and Simple Living for the Christian Year with her husband, Daniel, who is a farmer, beekeeper, and chef. They live in Waco, Texas with their four kids and she blogs at Carrots for Michaelmas. She also just released her new book, The Grace of Enough, pursuing less and living more in a throwaway culture. Thanks so much for being with us, Haley. Thanks so much for having me, Kimberly. And I want to definitely get into talking about your book and your awesome adventure on the farm, you know, a weir- a year away from basically the rat race, but I want to first just get to know Haley. And um, as I was looking through some of your recent blog posts, you had one titled, Motherhood Didn't Squelch My Creativity, It Made Me a Maker. And that to me really stuck out because, um, as you said, I get emails a lot from young women who are scared to have kids. They have brilliant talents and passions to pursue, and they are terrified that entering motherhood will mean that they will be trapped and all those dreams will die. And I definitely relate to that, um, as, before marriage being a young woman who held that mindset very much and terrified of motherhood and you know thinking of it as this institution that was definitely going to squash all that you were is you know that's in a lot of ways how our society sells motherhood um, but i love the way that you show it as a true freedom and so tell us how has motherhood enhanced rather than diminished your creative spark
2: yeah. Well, for me now, I think of myself as a writer, but really before I had my first child, it was like that that just wasn't a part of myself. I had unlocked it all. And it was almost as if once I had my son, it's like I had all of this creativity just like flowing out of my fingertips in a way I'd never experienced before. And I think also that I, I had... My first baby when I was just 23. So I was really young. Wow. And um, I think that that experience really transformed me in so many ways and helped me figure out who I was in new ways. And so it's almost as if for the first time I had something to say. Not that people who don't have kids have nothing to say or, you know, don't know who they are or anything like that, but just God knew what vocation I was called to and what my path of path to holiness would be and knew that I desperately needed that experience of motherhood in order to unlock all these parts of myself that he had created that I had never discovered before.
1: Yeah. I think that's the thing about vocation is that a lot of times we have these ideas of maybe what we're called to, whether it's, you know, single life, married life, or religious life, or um, how many kids we do or don't want or things like that, we have all these ideas. And then we realize just through living it and through lived experience, as we, you know, are given certain things in our journey, that, how much we needed that to, like you said, unlock our potential. And God is the only one that fully knows our potential and what we're capable of, what we can endure and what will really help us grow. And, um, so yeah, I definitely had a similar experience where I felt like after having my first child, I felt this wave of creativity that I had never, um, you know, felt before. And I, also started writing at that time more than I ever had before. So it's funny how your ideas of, you know, what motherhood is going to be really changes.
2: And- Absolutely. I, I I had originally thought that I was going to go to grad school and become a professor. That was kind of my mm-hmm. like vision for the future. And so right after I graduated with my undergrad, I got pregnant with my oldest And then after, when he was about a year old, I started a graduate program and I did one semester and I just realized like, this isn't the right time for this. I don't even know this, if this is the right fit for me. I know that I love to learn and now I know I love to write, but this just, it doesn't feel right. I miss him. I don't like that. I don't have flexibility in my life now. Um, I don't feel like I'm in a place where I have the energy to devote to him and to this program. So I quit the program and then it's just funny that now I I get to write about whatever I want. I get to connect with people and bounce ideas around. It's like, I get to do all of the things that I liked best about the idea of an academic life (laughs) without all of the negatives in some ways. And so it's just interesting how, yeah, that like God had this whole plan that he knew about And I was kind of like just swimming around trying to figure out what direction to go in. And then he just, you know, he led me right to where I was supposed to be. So it's just looking back, it's really cool.
1: Exactly. That's the thing is you are right where you're supposed to be, you know, and I think that's the thing about docility to the Holy Spirit and just being openness to God is that, looking back, if I had planned the rest of my life, I'd probably be very unhappy right now. (laughs) Now, And If I had told my high school self that this is where I'd be right now, you know, with four kids and everything, I'd probably think that I would be really miserable right now. So um, anyway, it's just good to be open to God and not Mm -hmm. take control of our own lives for sure. And then um, in your book, The Grace of Enough, There's a strong sentiment that a lot of people can relate to, the sentiment of too much stuff, too many hours, and too much time apart. It's something that many of us can relate to because we are running that rat race that plagues American society, but getting off of that track seems impossible so explain how you guys found freedom in pursuing less by leaving everything you had, including your house and your comfort and your security in Florida and how you decided that this was what you're being called to, to, you know, give all that up and to go, um, intern on a farm for a year in Texas.
2: Yeah. Well, um, we realized that we kind of needed a total reboot. And I, I guess this was when we were 28, we kind of realized this and we felt like now is the time to do something crazy. Like before we turn 30, you know, before we get too far down this track that we're on. Um, and not that our life was in any way terrible. You know, we owned a sweet little starter home in Tallahassee, Florida. My husband had a steady job. It wasn't something that he was real passionate about, but it was paying our mortgage and, um, but we just didn't feel like we were where we were supposed to be. Um, we didn't feel peaceful about, um, how our lives were structured. We felt like we weren't getting to see each other very much and, um, that we were just always racing around. And so we wanted to really switch gears. And our first thought was, oh, we could like buy land and have a farm, But then we realized we don't know how to farm. (laughs) We should not buy land and start a farm right now. Um, And so we had volunteered at this farm in Waco, Texas, back when we were in college. That is kind of a training farm. It doesn't really do that now, but at the time it did. And so we applied for an internship there for a year where you work and live and eat on the farm. And um, we actually put our house on the market before we knew we'd gotten the internship because we knew we needed to go ahead and sell. If we were offered the internship, we would need to have that ball rolling already. So we put our house on the market and we got rid of more than half of our stuff and this whole process because we were moving to a 650 square foot apartment. And we're currently living at like I guess it was like 1,100, 1100 um, square feet. So we knew we needed to get rid of about half of our stuff, and it ended up getting rid of a little bit more than that. So then we packed up our three kids and headed west to Texas.
1: Yeah, and you talk about a lot of the kickback. I'm sure the family and you know wasn't too happy about you guys leaving, and then you know that's got to be hard for everyone to digest because I know a lot of times it's hard to even. Um, fend off some of the Christmas and birthday presents, you know, that just like, you know, trying to make limitations. So there's not so much coming into the house because you already feel so overwhelmed. And then it's like, oh my gosh, it's another holiday. We're going to get in more <laughs> stuff, you know, and it's hard enough. I know for a lot of people to explain sometimes to family and even friends, how, you know, they're not wanting more things like don't give us things, you know, that kind of stuff. So that can be a very
2: fine line. Um, yeah, it's, and it's can... something that's difficult to balance because you always want to preserve relationships above even your desire for minimalism. You know, minimalism, I think, can be a really good thing. And living more simply having more mental space because you're not surrounded by clutter all of the time you know all of these things are are good things um but then it can get kind of warped to where that becomes your tunnel vision and you end up hurting people who love you because you can't like get out of this one thing um so i i get emails sometimes where people are like what do i do if i have you know family member who really wants to give us stuff and i'm always like just just you know Preserve the relationship above anything else, you know. So maybe the way that you can be sacrificial and loving is actually to accept the stuff. In this case, it's tricky. Yeah. It's so tricky. Net, that's with
1: the love languages too. You know, you have to understand the gift giver mm-hmm. as a love language. Um, and with the minimalism thing that has become very popular recently, which for better or for worse, and many have embraced minimalism. Um, But as you noted as well in the book, that unless there is a deeper attachment to a Christocentric understanding, that minimalism only goes so far. And you said that mere minimalism is an incomplete solution to our consumerism. If we ignore a deep generosity to share what we have with others, and if we are unwilling to accept help in return, we have not adopted a gospel mindset. Um, and you definitely refer to the acts of the early church in that. And I think that that it was really well said. So explain more about that. Like, why why can't it just be minimalism? Why can't we just embrace this popular minimalism, just like environmentalism and things like that? How, how does that need to take root?
2: Yeah, well, like you said, it has to always be Christ-centered and centered around the gospel. And so with secular minimalism, while it notes things that are true, like all of our stuff isn't making us happy, maybe getting, having less stuff um, improves how we feel, you know, those things are true. But someone living in a tiny house with just a few things could be just as obsessed with their possessions as someone in a McMansion. Um, And so it really has to be more of a spirit of detachment and commitment to living generously and not trying to grasp onto our things so much. And I think something that's really hard for Americans is um, being willing to accept help when we need it or or maybe not living in such um, making an idol out of security where it's like, oh, we will always be able to do this. No one will ever have to help us. Instead, um, acknowledging that we can be part of a community that's helping each other. Um, This isn't related to things, but I was just thinking about when our first baby was born. I was working full-time. Daniel was in school full-time. Um, our sweet baby was really colicky and we, we couldn't ever sleep. You know, we were so sleep deprived and we were 23. None of our friends were married and had kids. So we were the only ones of our friends that were married and had any kids and we were just drowning. But I felt like I, I couldn't ask for help because mm-hmm. this was our life and it was our family and I was supposed to be able to handle this. And this, you know, This is results of decisions we had made. So I couldn't say, hey, I am desperate. I need someone to come over and watch the baby so I can take a nap or else I might start hallucinating. I'm so tired. You know, I didn't feel Mm -hmm. like I could do that. And part of that, looking back, is this sense of this weird pride and this sense of shame that I would need help. And so I think that that's really twisted, but because our culture is so individualistic, that that's our attitude so much of the time, but to be willing to say, I want to be generous to my community. I'm willing to accept help when I need it, that there's this grace there that can cover our anxiety and fear over, are we going to have enough? Are we going to be able to do whatever thing it is? And um, I think that's, that's pretty neat. One thing that, in our community that I think is very cool is something called a buy nothing group. So they have chapters all over, but there's one for our neighborhood and it's a Facebook group. And when someone has something they don't need, they post it in the group and it's just a gift. It's free to whoever wants it. And Mm -hmm. it's just very cool to see different connections. You know, someone says, Oh, I'm, you know, taking in a new foster baby and I'm looking for this size of clothes and someone will say, oh, I've got, you know, tons of 2T clothes from my last baby. And you're just seeing all this stuff get offered as gift and these connections being made. It's really, really neat thing, especially because it's not like we all know each other, but we just live in the same place.
1: Yeah. And you talk about that authentic community and embracing that, um, especially when you talk about the car accident that happened right outside of your house. And then you realize that one of the victims of the accident was living just a few doors down from you guys. And it took kind of that accident to get to know that this person was your neighbor. And I think a lot of us don't know Um, sometimes even our direct next door neighbor, but definitely not the people next to them or two houses down or something like that. It's, it's definitely that we live in a bubble. And I think that you said it well with saying that we have a really hard time accepting help from anybody. And I know even thinking, I remember when I was a kid, we always went to the neighbors if we needed like sugar or an egg or something like that when we were cooking, or if you needed anything, you just went next door instead of going to the store. And I know, even for myself, like I don't think I've ever gone to the neighbors to ask for something like that just because it seems awkward. You know what I mean? Like maybe I don't know them that well, or I don't know, like putting them out or something for like an egg, you know? Um, I don't know, but like you said with the pride and, um, but community is something in the fabric of our beings that we need. And we fool ourselves often into believing that we're too busy, um, or that community doesn't serve a purpose for us, a direct purpose. Um, and many of us don't know our neighbors. So How do you recommend rebuilding that community um, just from the ground up with the people that we
2: maybe encounter or don't encounter right next door to us? I think that hospitality is kind of a, a forgotten art that we really need to uncover again. So I think just like inviting people over for dinner or inviting people over for a drink and just inviting them to your home is... Like, it's not a revolutionary idea, you know, it's so simple, but I think we've forgotten how to do it. Um, and I think sometimes we just don't realize how lonely people are, and maybe no one's invited yes. them over for ages. And, um, and so I think that that is just really, really crucial, and even things like. I mean, I don't know if you ever have this horrible impulse, but like you'll see a neighbor or someone and you'll think like, uh, I don't really want to like wave and say hi because then they might start talking to me and I really don't have the time <laughs> or energy for that. And you know, it's so silly. I think that, and I'm like, what, what is so important that like, I don't have 10 minutes to talk to so-and-so about, you know, whatever, But I
1: think there's this. Well, I have to laugh because we have a neighbor who that would definitely be an hour
2: conversation about nothing at any given (laughs) time. We have had some neighbors like that. So sometimes you do have to be careful, granted. Um, But just being willing to be inconvenienced, um, I think that. When we become so isolated, we are so in control of our environment and our time and kids cures you of that a little bit because you realize that nothing can be efficient with children, with small mm-hmm. children. But I think kind of expanding that attitude towards anyone that we come in contact with, that it's okay for us to be interrupted. It's okay for us to be inconvenienced. Um is is really important. You know, if if a friend calls we might not have the energy to have a conversation, but if a friend calls and they need to talk being willing to answer the phone and take that time. We may have blocked off that evening for something else, but just being willing to to do that. All these little sacrifices that build up our communities and um help us help us reflect the love of Christ.
1: And we have friends who are missionaries, and they um, they do this thing called ugly dinner parties. I don't know if you've heard of that uh-uh. at all. Where <laughs> where it's like friends in the community will get together like once a week or something, maybe like Sunday evenings and someone will host the party. And it's like, you're not allowed to clean up. You're not allowed to like pick up any toys. Like everyone brings something for a potluck. So you don't have to go around, you know, fixing everything up and having the house perfect. So the house should look terrible. Like It should basically look the way it look on an ordinary day. And everyone just comes over dressed in like sweats and everything like that. And you just like have a dinner party together where everyone pitched in so it's not like that idea of like oh we'd love to have people over but then we have to like vacuum and cook something and clean you know everything has to look great and all this other kind of stuff and feeling like it's too much work to invite people over so it's like nope your house better look bad you know yeah. <laughs> better look ugly I love so that. i love that idea i know and when i was reading um the grace of enough All I could think about, honestly, through most of it was, (laughs) how is this going to end? Like, how will life go back? I know that they're only on the farm for a year. So what happens, you know, after they have that breathing room, that intense togetherness where they're eating three meals a day together and, you know, her husband's just up the farm road from them, what is life going to be back like? when they, you know, the year is up and they return, how is it going to be different than it was before? How do you not get sucked into
2: the same rat race that you were in before? Yeah. Um, that was, it was funny. We like did so much work getting to the farm and then we got there and I was like, ah, we're here. And I was like, oh no, we have to decide what to do next. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like as soon as we got there, I was like, we've only got 12 months to stay in our utopia forever. (laughs) Right. So um, we decided we wanted to stay in Waco and we found a little house. Waco is an interesting, weird town because there are tons of beautiful historic homes that have fallen into disrepair because there was a tornado in the 50s that killed hundreds of people. And it destroyed so much of the town that pretty much all the businesses left and it was just plunged into a depression. And so there were all these homes that nobody lived in. And so it's a weird town because you've got All these neighborhoods of historic homes, but it's really spotty. You'll have one street that's nice and another street that's not, and it's all kind of mixed in together. And we decided we really wanted to live um, not in the suburbs, but in town um, and build community there. So we found a little house with a giant backyard so we could still do some farming. So we've got chickens and vegetables and flowers. And um, we wanted, To still be spending as much time together as possible. So um, my husband works two miles away. So he bikes to work. So we don't have to have a second car, which is great. Oh, wow. And um, so he works evenings, some days of the week. So basically we have every morning together as a family and three full days together as a family. So even on days when he's not here for dinner, we still get to have like sit down breakfast together, sit down lunch together, which is really nice. And you know, you know how life is, life gets crazy and it's always going to be going, you know, you're going to go through these crazy seasons. Like I just had a baby four months ago and my pregnancies are always miserable and I'm just so sick. I'm so nauseous and so ill for months and months and months that I basically can't get out of bed for about four months. Um, Mm. and so we were just in like this crazy season and, you know, things get crazy. It's not like, Oh, we moved to a farm and we, we've had this enlightenment and now we're never (laughs) rushed and the house is never cluttered, you know, not like that at all. But I do think that the things we really realized our family is all about, um, You know, we homeschool so we can spend a lot of time together. I work from home and then my husband's work means that he can be home during the day a lot of the time with us, homeschooling and being a part of things. Um, I think that that's really working out well for us. You know, nothing's ever perfect and it never will be. But I feel like the way we've decided we really want to structure our lives um, has made life hard in a good way not the like horrible not peaceful rushing around miserable kind of feeling we had before
1: right and see I love that you hung on to so many pieces of that like the big backyard like I that's what I kept asking myself the whole time are they still farming do they have a garden like is our husband back to a nine to five that he hates now or how like what have they held on to you know do they still eat together
2: yeah <laughs> still like trying to get to the end of the book yeah and it's been it's been good because now my husband um, works in social work he works for a nonprofit it with at-risk youth. And so his work is hard, but he really finds it fulfilling and meaningful, which is not how he felt about his previous work. Um, And I really love the work that I get to do. And so I feel like, you know, our lives are busy. We have four little kids and we're homeschooling and we're both working to some degree. Um, But I do feel like we're like, oriented in the right direction, if that makes sense. Um, right. Whereas before, we just felt so stuck, like, this isn't where we need to be, but we don't know how to get to where we want to be or what that would look like.
1: Right. And so, you speak so beautifully on motherhood and, you know, just exemplifying the crazy life with no sugar coating, but then of course, you know, as Catholics, the fullness of that vocation and you and your husband are both converts. Is that correct? That's right. You Mm -hmm. both converted. And I know that you also shared in the end of the book a little bit about contraception and wanting to give up the pill and how that really had a little bit of an impact on you eventually coming to the church, among other things. So can you just share a little bit with people? Because I know that is such a fascinating topic.
2: Sure. So um, we got married halfway through college. So we were just 20 and Daniel had just turned 21 when we got married. And we were studying a lot of the early church fathers in our classes in college and really slowly over our first couple years of marriage, all of our kind of intellectual barriers to the idea of Catholicism were just being like slowly, they were slowly crumbling. And so we're kind of on the road to Rome, but not ready to really make any kind of move. We like knew it was coming, but we just couldn't jump in. So, um, one of the things that really impacted us was the church's teaching on theology of the body and human sexuality. And you know, I had already had a really miserable experience with the pill. It made me super sick and emotional. And just I just didn't feel like myself um, for almost two years that I was on it. And so those symptoms combined with what we were learning about what the Catholic church taught about marriage and sexuality really convinced us that, okay, we don't want to do this anymore. Um, And so we planned to learn NFP, but never really got there. I did some, I did some mild Googling and it may shock you, Kimberly, but A short Googling of NFP doesn't really give you a full, fully equipped understanding of of NFP. So um, we, I guess right after I graduated, we found out we were pregnant with our first baby and really knowing that he was coming, we were like, we're going to have to get him baptized. We believe in you know the efficacy of the sac- sacrament of baptism because we grew up in traditions that waited until um, a child is the age of reason to baptize, and so we were like, mm-hmm. we can't wait that long. We're gonna have to get this baby baptized, <laughs> and so it kind of pushed us into RCIA and really taking taking the plunge into becoming Catholic. And so it was it was just kind of neat how the teachings of the church affected our lives in ways that kind of gave us the grace to make that plunge.
1: That's awesome. And, um, so I guess the last question that I'll just ask is because I know you also discuss social media, separating families and, um, how we can make social media work for us and the internet work for us rather than allowing it to kind of take over. So what does a typical, night, like when Daniel's home and, and you guys are just sitting around, maybe the kids have gone to bed. What does a typical night look like for you guys? Do you try to devote like a certain amount of time to just talking about your day or just praying together or just, you know, how do you not just make it about sitting around and watching TV or being so exhausted that you're just sleeping on the couch, sitting (laughs) up next to each other? Oh, that's such a
2: good question, Kimberly. (laughs)
1: Um, It's 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 like and the end of the podcast. (laughs) Sorry, we're out of time.
2: (laughs) Um, Well, the thing is, it's interesting because now Daniel gets to be around us all way more than he did in the past. But he and I don't have as much time, just the two of us. And so nights when he's not working, once the kids go to bed, I always feel like. Here's all of the thoughts I've been thinking for the past two days oh, that yeah. I know. So, we do end up talking a lot about, you know, here's what I've been reading and here's what I've been thinking. And, oh, did you hear about this? Um, but we do enjoy, you know, grabbing some ice cream and watching The Office or, or something like that to relax is definitely, I think, a, a good thing. Um, but yeah, I feel like a lot of the times when we actually have an evening together, we just spend it talking.
1: All right, well, our guest tonight has been Haley Stewart. You can find her at Carrots for Micklemas and also her new book, The Grace of Enough is available from Ave Maria Press. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Haley. Thanks so much for
2: having me, Kimberly.
0: Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.